Come up on I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. Today we have on our show poet and critic Edward Hirsch, who has many books of poems out, but it just came out with a new book called A Poet's Glossary. And it is a fantastic collection of poetic terms. Just came out, and we're going to talk to him about that. On Poetic License, we have a Fresno poet. Her name is Marisol Baca, and she's going to share some words with us. Oh, and by the way, Ed Hurst will also read the poem of the week. About seven years ago, a friend of mine, Agustin Porras, who is a poet, uh, we went to University of Oregon together, graduated from the MFA program, gave me Edward Hirsch's The Demon and the Angel. And I read it, and I loved it, and it had an incredible influence on me. And I think it had an influence on many writers and poets because it resuscitated, brought back the term duende as a poetic term. And I remember after reading it, I went to Buenos Aires. I took a year off after I sold my novel and the shadows took him. I took a year off and went to go live in Buenos Aires. I brought that book with me. I underlined it. I dog-eared it. And every morning I would get up and I would write my novel and then I would read a little bit of Ed Hirsch, a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe, a little bit of Borges, a little bit of Swedenborg. And then I'd go out into the city. And the city just revealed itself to me in incredible ways. And I think it was partially because I was so focused on Duende and so focused on the novel and so focused on reading these incredibly mystical, spiritual writers uh, who I admired very much. It's the city kind of like fed me. It, it was an amazing experience. And the novel I was working on was called Black Sound. And I got that idea from uh, a quote in Edward Hirsch's book. It says, everything that has black sound has duende. And duende is this concept in poetry, this darkness, this source of artistic inspiration. And so I wanted my novel to have duende, and I called it Black Sound. Well, it was an incredible failure. I wrote for about six months every day, and I had a 500-page novel. I sent it to my agent. I was waiting for her to call me back and say, Chacon, you are the most brilliant writer ever. This is going to be big. And she did call me back, but unfortunately, that's not what she said. She says, what is this? And this is going to sound strange, but what ended up happening is I started to imagine a character in my novel, who was dead. And I didn't know where this character came from, but the character just kind of took over the language, and the novel just went in all these weird places, and it was it was really dark. I mean, sometimes I would be so immersed in her vision and her world that when I got out of the novel, I felt like, like I'd just been there for five minutes, but then I'd see, like, hours and hours had passed. Lorca says uh, that Duende fights against form. I think I let the Duende win in this one, and the form just kind of went crazy. So what I did is what a lot of authors do when they write crappy novels. Out of 500 pages, I think I had about 100 pages that were, quite frankly, pretty good. And they ended up in my latest book, Hotel Juarez, Stories, Rooms, and Loops. And I think there might be some Duende there. Who knows? But I got so... Um, immersed in that world that people used to call me Professor Duende here at University of Texas, El Paso. Anyway, I'm really excited to talk to Edward Hirsch. Stick around and we'll dip into his latest book, A Poet's Glossary. (laughs) 
Edward Hirsch is probably one of the most well-known and important poets in the United States. His first book was called For the Sleepwalkers, and it was nominated for a National Book Critics Award. His second was called Wild Gratitude, and that won the award in 1987. He has been awarded an NEA, a Guggenheim, and a MacArthur Genius Grant. His numerous awards include Ingram Merrill Foundation Award, and it goes on and on and on. He has written three incredible books about poetry, and, well, maybe even more, but the ones that that I know and have admired are The Demon and the Angel, which I mentioned in the introduction, as well as How to Write a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry. His latest book, which we're going to be focusing on today, is called A Poet's Glossary. We're very happy to have on Words on a Wire, Edward Hirsch. It's my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, I've wanted to have you on this show for a long time, so when A Poet's Glossary came out, I thought, well, this is a chance to talk to you. This is an amazing undertaking. It's about 800 pages, and it's filled with terms, poetic terms, and it took you 15 years to compile this. Tell us, what made you want to do this? Um, it's a mad enterprise, I admit it. <laughs> uh, I, I confess, it's a little crazy. It began because people are often have difficulties with poetry, and one of the difficulties they have with it is with some of the terms, which are not so difficult, um, but need to be demystified. And I thought that I could help um, help readers, really, by explaining some of the terms. And I first did a smaller glossary as part of How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, and readers really liked the glossary to that book. It was a great book. Thank you. And I decided to expand it to all the other, to all the other terms, and I became obsessively interested in it myself. And I was discovering so many things myself that I basically, I just couldn't stop. I just kept going. And I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to explain it for poets. And I wanted to explain it for un- uninitiated readers. I wanted to give a history of the forms. I wanted to describe the forms. I wanted to give examples. And it just sort of got away from me. I couldn't <laughs> stop. Wow. I couldn't stop. You know, you know I, I could imagine you really kind of getting so immersed in the research that you're almost like an alchemist. You're like, you're, you're, you're uncovering layers and uh, mystical layers as you're going through all these terms and putting them together. I mean, the thing that was interesting to me was, you know, it began with all the terms that people who know about poetry and care about poetry might want to be interested in, might want to know about. All the forms like the sonnet, Mm -hmm. the villanelle, the guzzle, the sestina, and then other sort of complicated terms like nature poetry or terms I knew like naked poetry. But increasingly, I began to find things myself that I didn't really know that much about. And I myself became very excited about the things that I was finding. And I wanted to bring them to readers because they're not normally considered part of our literary conversation because my book is such an international book. You know, the way I approach this book, it's a glossary. The introduction is very short. It's only like two pages. And so there's, you know, the narrative that does come out, comes out from the terms themselves. But what I like to do is I like to just like go from term to term. I open it arbitrarily and I, it's like a labyrinth, I would say, where you can just enter it any way and it will lead you guided by your interests and also guided by the spirit of the book itself. Well, I thank you so much. That's the idea. I mean, at the bottom of every term, there's this thing that says, see also. Right. And my idea was sort of one thing leads to another. 
and that it's a kind of uh, a kind of pathway. So if you begin with one term and it interests you, you can follow the path to the other terms. So let me give you an example. Say you wonder, what does it mean when the epic poets begin, help me, O heavenly muse, or sing to me, O heavenly muse? So you look up invocation. So you read about what an invocation is, and at the bottom it says, see also inspiration. Because you're getting the idea that there's something that's not entirely conscious in the making of poetry, and poets are calling on some external force for help. I mean, Shelley says, not even the greatest poet can say, I will compose poetry. Because poetry is not entirely subject to the dispensations of the will. So when you get to inspiration, you then could go to the word aflatus, which you may never have heard of, which I didn't really know, which is a Latin term for inspiration, and what the Latin poets meant by that. And that will lead you to spontaneity, and the idea of spontaneity and creativity. And that will lead you to Awen, which is a Celtic term for creativity, which will lead you to a bard. And this will give you the idea of how bards operated in Celtic countries, sometimes by training for seven to 12 years. And that will lead you to the Greek <laughs> term, Aotis, which is what Homer may have been as a Greek singer. And so it goes. That's the sort of way I think that the book could lead you around. Obviously, it's a reference if you want to know what an elegy is, or you want to know what an obad is, you can go and look it up. But if there are other things that you've never heard of, just looking through, you'll find out what drum poetry is, or what Scottish flighting is, things that you just wouldn't normally know about, and I think just expand your poetic universe. Right, and I can imagine a lot of poets, uh, first of all, I think every poet should have this on their shelf, it's, it's an amazing experience, but I imagine a lot of poets in, in, in just kind of going through it, choosing you know whatever word that appeals to them, like for example, the word flarf is very appealing to me on page 236, <laughs> and uh, I had never heard of this, but I love the sound of flarf. And after reading it and figuring out what kind of poem it was or what it was describing, it almost makes me want to write one. And I guess the definition for farf, it's a term that was coined in 2000, and it means an intentionally bad poem. <laughs> I know, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, and then it brings up the idea of spomes. What are spomes? This is sort of, this is the e-revolution that we're on. It's just extremely funny, all of this <laughs> stuff. Because we're talking about, you know, a recent term in which people wrote intentionally bad poems that somehow found some kind of, you know, interest because of putting things together. So that led to a kind of anthology of spam poetry, which sort of consists of spam and other junk mail turned into poems. And then S poetry or spomes are poems, this is just so peculiar, made up from subject lines of spam emails. <laughs> So basically what's happening is that the detritus of electronic culture, the leftover stuff, the junk, is just getting recycled purposefully to pay attention to it, to see what kind of language we're using, and to create kind of, well, in this case, purposefully bad poetry. <laughs> when, your, when your book, The Demon and the Angel, came out uh, about the source of artistic inspiration, you pretty much brought the word duende back to poetry. I mean, I know that we can you know, go to Lorca as its source for poetry specifically, but you brought it into the, the poet's 
culture, and and it and it just spread so quickly, and everybody was suddenly talking about duende. It was like it was like the hula hoop for poetic terminology. Um, everybody wanted one. Everybody wanted to talk about it. Suddenly, there were like conferences and panels on duende, and it certainly transformed my my way of seeing poetry and, and inspiration. When, when I got your book, immediately I went to duende. You know, I wanted to see what it said, and as I you know, looked up the term. You talk about how duende is. Um, you mean a mysterious power which everyone senses and no philosopher explains? Yeah, and also the duende is possible. Wherever death is possible, the duende will appear. That connection between duende and death. Right. All that black sounds has duende is what a gypsy singer like to say. I mean. Duende is a term, that's a, perfect, a really good example of what I'm trying to do in this book, although I also, I'd already written a book about this. But it's sort, of a, it's sort of a guide for what I wanted to do. Duende is a Spanish word that we don't really have any equivalent for in English. And if you don't have an equivalent for a word, you don't really have that concept exactly. Mm-hmm. So just to say quickly, in Spanish folklore, a duende is sort of an imp or a poltergeist-like figure, or a hobgoblin, a trickster, who steals your keys or hides your stuff. But in Andalusia, where Garcia Lorca was from, it had a special meaning for the obscure power and penetrating inspiration of art. It means something like art in the presence of death. And is something, an element of mortal panic or fear, some, some element of the unconscious, some power, some struggle comes up from the earth and works through the artist and transforms the work into something that was previously unanticipated. And we didn't really have a term for it. And I wanted to, I mean, I didn't make up this term. It was a term from Spanish folklore, and then it was a term that Garcia Lorca used powerfully in the late 1920s, and I thought it was exemplified in his book, Poet in New York, and I wanted to try and explain that term and bring it to readers. So that's what Duende is. We don't really have a concept for it, but the idea of some kind of special inspiration, dark inspiration, not light inspiration, something that comes from the earth rather than from above, something that has an unconscious power, something that's associated with death, that seemed interesting to me. Yeah, and I think oftentimes that when we write, whether we're writing fiction or poetry, death is somehow involved. Death, you know, becomes the subject. I was trying to wonder how many novels, for example, have the have death or the dead in the first line. It's always there. <laughs> I think that, you know, human mortality is something that's very hard for us ever to understand. There's something mysterious about it. I myself can never reconcile myself to the fact that people I care about and and have loved actually die, and they're not with you in the same way. I think that this idea of our mortality, that we're going to die, is at the root of poetry. It's at the root of lyric poetry especially. Something is unbearable about our condition, and we've got to try and come to terms with it. And we try to leave a record of what our lives are were like, what it felt like to be here. And I think novels do that in one kind of way, a kind of social way, by describing the external world and by describing people moving through that world. And poetry describes it through the intensity of its feeling, through the compression of its language, 
through the power of its emotion. Mm-hmm. So I think that this idea of death, it really drives a lot of poetry, and it drives two kinds of poetry. The poetry of lamentation, the poetry of elegy, easing the death, the dead on their path into the other world. And there are many, many terms in my glossary for this from different cultures. Keening, lamentation, elegy, mm-hmm. like that, lament. But it also powers the poetry of joy, the poetry of praise, the poetry of naming. That is, we're amazed that we're in the world and the world is here, and that we want to itemize the passing world to try and hold on to it, a kind of the glory of it. And there are many terms in my book for praise poetry, Mm. for the poetry of joy and ecstasy, the poetry of prophecy. Yeah, you know, I imagined uh, you being like Webster and just continually adding words and the book getting bigger and bigger, or perhaps other volumes coming out for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, you're scaring me now. <laughs> you're scaring me now. I mean, part of this book was that I didn't want to just give definitions. I wanted to write and explain the terms and what they meant and what their history was. So in that way, you have to You have to give yourself a little more time. A few of the terms are just small definitions, as you know. But some of them go on for two, three, and four pages. They're really meant to be mini essays about things that are important to me in poetry. Yeah, like Borges' anthology of poetry, when he defines terms and defines poets and things. It's really short, really brilliantly put together passages. And I, I found myself enjoying an almost every term that I stopped on here. The one that I really love is the heresy of the paraphrase. And uh, this is the idea that poetry can't be paraphrased. Otherwise, what is that quote that you use? It says... I I think I know what you mean, where Osip Manostam, the Russian poet, said that if a poem can be paraphrased, then the sheets haven't been rumpled. That's it, exactly. Poetry hasn't spent the night. Yeah, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That's really funny and accurate, I think. Because heresy of paraphrase... It's such an academic-sounding term. But behind it is a real recognition that when you describe a poem, you're not doing the same thing as the poem itself, that there's something untranslatable about poetry. And there's a slight violation when you're talking about it. But that sounds very academic. So Mandelstam understood that because in poetry, the words are inseparable from the meaning. So Mandelstam's idea that if a poem can be paraphrased, it's not exactly a poem because poetry hasn't really come in and gotten inside of you. Right. Poetry has to be experienced. Exactly. Poetry has to be experienced, not merely talked about. And there's many uh, uh, philosophers and writers who have said that music is the highest form of art, and one of the ways of articulating that is that music, you cannot summarize Beethoven's Ninth. You have to be in it. You have to experience it. And this is kind of elevating poetry, not only higher up the art form, but also giving it a mystical quality, because you have to be in it. You have to be absorbed in it, imagination, intellect, and even on a visceral level in order for poetry to matter. Exactly. I mean, you could say things about it that are helpful. I mean, my whole glossary is meant to be that. But it's not meant to replace the experience of it itself. Right, right. It's to aid you in the experience, but the experience itself is a kind of, you know, incarnate connection. You know, everyone has listened to a piece of music, or I hope they have, where you listen to a piece of music, or you see a work of art, or you read a poem, 
and you feel almost as if you're creating the thing to which you're actually only responding. So deeply does it speak to you. Yeah. I mean, there are some poems you read and you go, this is a really great poem, but it doesn't speak to my inner life. And there are some poems you read and you go, that's not really for me. But there are other poems you read, you go, this speaks to me so deeply, I feel almost as if I've written it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But of course, you haven't written it, you're responding to it. But that speaks to the way that art can get inside our interior lives and give us names for things that we don't otherwise have names for. We have a segment called Poem of the Week, and uh, we would be uh, really honored if you would read a poem. That would be my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a joy to talk about this book with you. To poetry. Don't desert me just because I stayed up last night watching The Lost Weekend. I know I've spent too much time praising your naked body to strangers and gossiping about lovers you betrayed. I've stalked you in foreign cities and followed your far-flung movements pretending I could describe you. Forgive me for getting jacked on coffee and obsessing over your features year after jittery year. I'm sorry for handing you a line and typing you on a screen, but don't let me suffer in silence. Does anyone still invoke the muse, string a wooden lyre for Apollo, or try to saddle up Pegasus? Winged horse, heavenly god or goddess, indifferent entity, secret code, stored magic, pleasance and half-wonder. Hell, I've loved you my entire life without even knowing what you are or how. Please help me to find you. That was Edward Hirsch reading two poetry. Thank you, Edward Hirsch, for joining us. Uh, it's been an honor. Thank you, Daniel. Great pleasure for me. Hi, this is Marisol Baca. I'm going to read a few poems about discovery and memory. I'm a poet. I live in Fresno, California, and I teach English at Fresno City College. The Orno. Mud mound, size of a cellar. One September, a cupola was built. A mixture of clay and straw stalks carried from Grandpa's dark blue Ford pickup. Red heap, it looked like, in the distance. Here is my father's body moving over the frame of the kiln, so that after time it begins to resemble an anthill, and a dark tunnel is dug in the earth, good for smoking freshwater trout, which the men catch in the rivers and lakes. It takes days to let the bricks settle and dry. I count foxtails and stomp in the marsh beside the alfalfa fields. Mother is on the creamsicle phone. She has orders. The crib is now much too small for me. Orno in the rain is deep red. I rubbed my hand over it, and the side of it bled purple like blackberries. Inside, with frozen peas in my mouth, I watch Dad shaping the final bricks. The sun has changed him to a horse. No undershirt, hair black and long like Jesus's in photos. Dad bought ducks in the winter. Mom told stories to Grandpa. I followed the ducks into the furnace and fell asleep. Snow-covered, the Ordno had become a hilly shadow stretched at noon, gloomy and long. Clouds, the same color as the inside of that thing. Smoke painted the walls in ash. Feathers left over and over from the ducks. 
They disappeared after months. I didn't cry when they were gone. He used to smoke trout in it. My father, Magdalena, I am praying for you. I have fallen asleep in the old Orgno again. Trout in lakes and rivers. The smoke in wisps along the road. Long trails of feathers beside the fields, lakes, and rivers. The trout inside the rivers. The poems uh, that I'm reading are a part of a series that try to map a childhood spent in separate places. That of daydreams and of waking life, with duende and struggle. The poems here are about the world that I lived in as a child dreamer. We lived on a plot of land that spread out in acres of alfalfa next to the Rio Grande River. My father built a huge working orgno at our Ranchitos Elementary School. He also built one in our backyard. They found me inside of it one day, a loose layer of soot all over me. I tried for a long time to describe a place that was so obscured by impressions and distant memory, and I let that go so that I could grasp the unreal moments as if they were real, the dream as if it was awake. This world was an enchantment. We also traveled, all of us, the cousins and uncles and aunts, grandmothers and grandfathers, to the rivers and to the Sandia Mountains and the haunted hills outside in the badlands of New Mexico. The next poem is The Discovery. They found the Nautilus at the peak of the Sandia Mountains, in a crag, they said. I think the sun shone through it, and all the mysteries of its labyrinth glowed. It had a story that petrified animals shared with it, and measure by measure it fed itself on the land. It suffocated in the slime and dark dollops of nothingness. It turned into a moonstone and reminded one of the Pueblo Indians of the sea. He recalled his dreams of the dolphins, his nightmares of their shrieking and singing, and his fantasies of the seaweed and its blotted smell. It had ancient teeth inside its body swirl. How it had come to the highest peak was an anomaly. The ocean was nowhere, except in the recesses of their minds, like libraries made of pyrite, like paper bridges and tiny doors opening to nothing. They were afraid of the gristle in its living chamber. They were scared it would understand them and try to crawl away or fly. It was much more fantastic than the velociraptor footprints they found. It was a residue in their hearts a tentacular lust, sucking them free of the valley they traveled from. They forgot about their wives at home roasting chili. They forgot about their sons' respectable long limbs and fishing under rock formations deep in the woods. They forgot everything except that spaceship of deep, how it ached in them. And it was angry for trees underwater, for purple and green and teal inkiness. It reminded them of Heron Dam and the Ammonites they found there, big as tabletops, hundreds of them left over from some great inland sea. They said the discovery was old as Earth. They said it had seen the nebulas and the bowl of space from its foggy eye. Thank you for letting me share today. For Words on a Wire, I'm Marisol Baca. I'd like to thank my guest, 
Edward Hirsch for talking to us about his new book, A Poet's Glossary. If you are a poet or if you know a poet or if you've ever been interested in poetry, you have to pick up that book. I'd also like to thank Marisol Baca for sharing her poetic license. I'm Daniel Chacon. Join me next week for another edition of Words on a Wire. And don't forget, the next book you read may have a lot of duende. I'm up on a tight wire One side's ice and one is fire It's a circus game with you and me I'm up on a tight rope One side's hate and one is hope But the top hat on my head is all you see